Hello. And welcome to Plotting Through the President. I'm Howard Dory. I'm Jess Dory. And a big welcome to our new listeners. I hope that you're all doing well on the John Adams diet. Yeah. How does your husky bod look? (laughs) (laughs) I realize that we've actually been following the first step of the John Adams diet recently with without even knowing it. The chocolate step? Yeah. yeah. How have we been following the chocolate? Oh, yeah. 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 The first step of the John Adams diet is chocolate for breakfast because that's what he said he had every day. Yes. And we have a chocolate protein shake. <laughs> yeah. That double rich chocolate whey protein shake because, you know, we're trying something new. We're trying a lot of things, but it's it's nice to not be hungry. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a quick yeah. breakfast. I mean, I've been mixing mine with ice cream. Oh, yeah. Yeah. That explains some things. <laughs> wow. <laughs> Today, I am excited to share an interview with historian and author H.W. Brands. I can't wait for this. He's a professor of history at the University of Texas. He's written something like 30 books on American history, including a great book on FDR called Traitor to His Class. His newest book is Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling Birth of American Politics. If you're familiar with our back catalog, as, mm-hmm. as you are, mm-hmm. I feel like it's a primer for this book. Like we've covered a lot of these contentious relationships and the birth of parties and the election of 1800 from so many angles. So if you're into that kind of thing, mm-hmm. some episodes of ours that I highly recommend Adams versus Hamilton, A Superabundance of Hate. Oh, yeah. Madison and Washington's Founding Fracture. Mm-hmm. A Perfect Monster, Burr, Hamilton, and the Manhattan Company. That one was really interesting. Yes, yes. Burr is such a scoundrel. Yes, yes. And The Scandalmonger's Revenge, which is about pamphleteer James Callender's role in America's early sex scandals and exposing them. So that's just some of the content I think that might accompany this book in an entertaining way. And speaking of this book, we are excited to be giving away a copy of Founding Partisans. You can enter for a chance to win by March 8th. Enter at plodpod.com. You'll also find a link in the show notes. Oh, that's great. It was a real pleasure to talk to brands about these struggles in the early republic and Mm -hmm. how they relate to whatever the hell is happening right now. (laughs) Right. So let's hear it. Okay. All right. Dr. H.W. Brands, historian and author of so many great books about American history, including his newest, Founding Partisans, Hamilton, Madison, Jefferson, Adams, and the Brawling Birth of American Politics. Welcome to the show. Delighted to be with you. You recently wrote about the American Revolution as America's first civil war between loyalists and patriots. Your newest book is about those patriots getting into partisan battles over the Constitution and the role of the new national government. So based on your research, why can't we all just get along? (laughs) Well, because people have different ideas. And because in a republic, the kind of government that was created by the American Revolution and then the Constitution, people um, have a right to have their voices heard. There's nobody who has a monopoly on truth, and everybody gets to have a voice. Because people have different ideas, they compete to make sure that their voice is the one that influences policy. It strikes me in that vein that as much as this book is about the differences between these founders and what they represented, it's just as much a book about compromise. Is that right? Yes, yes and no, because compromise was something that at various times, the people who wrote the Constitution, for example, were compelled to do. They weren't going to get a Constitution if they didn't compromise. 
there was very little compromise in what they considered to be their principles. So each held to his principles. Now they often realized that if you stick to your principles entirely, nothing gets done. And there's something that's important to keep in mind about that generation and our current generation. One of the reasons I wrote the book is I wanted to see the roots of our present partisan strife. And I had studied and known enough about American history to realize that parties had been around for a long time. So I wanted to know how did they get started? What were the expectations of the people who created the first parties? Were they disappointed that there were parties? Was there an alternative path? Could we have become a country without parties? And is the nature of partisan warfare today the same, different from partisan warfare in those old days? There's one fundamental difference that just sort of stands out to me, and that is for the generation of the 1780s and 1790s. That's the period I focus on in the book. It's the period that has won the Revolutionary War and gained American independence. Now they're trying to figure out what to do next. In particular, how to keep the government, to keep this experiment in Republican self-government keep it going. They all understood how fragile was this thing that they had created. I think it still astonished them that they had done what they had done. Because really, for the first time in world history, a bunch of guys got together, and they they were nearly all guys. They got together, and they created this country just out of whole cloth. Countries and governments had in the past grown organically. So, the empire of Egypt kind of emerged out of the the mists of prehistory and a warrior became king and the laws gradually accreted. But there was never a moment when he said, stop, we're not going to do this. We're changing it. We're starting over again. But that's exactly what the Americans did. And so it was quite a bold stroke and nobody knew if it would work. It hadn't worked in the past because it hadn't been tried. And so They understood that if they screwed this thing up, if they stood on principle, if they abused and battered this republic they had created, there was no guarantee it would continue. It might dissolve into a dictatorship. It might simply collapse in chaos. There might be a monarch that would emerge out of this. So the history that they knew of, the empire's past, the republic's past, They never lasted forever, certainly, and often they had ended badly. So they were quite concerned that as hard as they would promote their ideas, and they did. Jefferson had a set of beliefs. Hamilton had a set of beliefs. Everybody had their sets of beliefs. They were disinclined to push them as hard as they could for fear that they would break this vessel that they had created. Now, when I look at partisan politics today, I think there's a strong temptation to believe that, look, it's been around for two centuries. It was probably inevitable that it would evolve the way it did. And if it's been here for two centuries, it'll be here for another two centuries, kind of regardless of how much we misuse it. And I think that is actually a fundamental misreading of history and what it means. So there were these set of guardrails that the first partisans, as I would call them, the founding partisans, put on their actions. I'm not sure the guardrails are still there anymore. When you talk about guardrails, I think of that generation, that time as a, a society built on on honor. Um, is that a guardrail that's missing? Or w- what do you mean when you say those guardrails aren't there anymore? To say that that was a generation that had a greater sense of honor than, say, the current generation, which I gather is the, the gist of, of what you're saying. Yeah, there was a sense of honor, but it was a a different sense of honor we have today. It was a sense that would inspire Hamilton and Burr to 
fight a duel right, in which Hamilton yeah. was killed. So it was a different sense of honor. But I don't think I don't think they were fundamentally more moral than we are. I don't think they were fundamentally even more civic-minded than we are. They were ambitious. They had their ambitions. They had their narrow-mindedness. They certainly played politics hard, and they really set the mold for a lot of political partisanship that we have today, including, you know, today it's often thought of as a cliche of the modern era that we get to choose our own media. And so if you're conservative, you choose Fox News, you choose conservative outlets and liberal, same thing. Well, these are the guys who created that model because Jefferson, for example, and Madison got together and they created a newspaper. They hired a guy to create a newspaper that pushed their point of view. And Hamilton, on the opposite side, did the same thing. There was a period sort of in the middle of American history, really, after the beginning of television, when the television, the major networks, were required by law, by FCC regulation, to, if you show one side of an issue, you have to show the other side of the issue. That was not true in the 1790s. You know, we'll show our side of the issue and leave the other side to those other guys. When I think about honor, I think about, maybe to me it just seems like they cared more about their reputation, ah, and there were consequences to that. Ah, there's no question about that. Now, they did care about reputation, and reputation was sort of the coin of the realm in not just politics, but in social life. It mattered, too, that the political classes in those days were a much smaller group, so they knew each other personally. You know, nowadays, if you start out in politics in Maine, you don't know the people are starting out in politics in California. You know, you live in a country of 340 million people like we do now. You can't know everybody. But in a country of 4 million, as in 1790, and take, you know, factor out of that all the women who are not in politics, all the, certainly the African-Americans who are not enfranchised, who are not part of the political realm, and most, even adult white men aren't voting. So it's a much smaller group. So they did know each other and that probably did temper some of this. There was, again, I would say also a sense that they had created this republic and they were responsible for handing it off to the next generation in one piece. And so, so that was a big deal. I'll just add one last thing. And that is we're now, what, seven years into what we can call the age of Donald Trump. And so where Donald Trump is this major presence on the national stage. And really, until Donald Trump became president, until he became this, this national public figure who had to be taken credibly, had to be taken seriously, um, a sense of honor was something that did motivate or at least uh, inspire the actions of a lot of politicians. So if you were going to become president, if you're going to put yourself to the American public to be president, you, you thought you needed to act in a certain distinguished way. Now, Donald Trump broke that mold, and it worked for him. We'll find out. It worked for him in 2016. It didn't work in 2020. If it works in 2024, then we might be in this, this new regime where other people will follow that. If it only worked for him once, if he turns out to be the anomaly, then that sense that, okay, if you get elected president, then you better start acting presidential. That is something that every successful candidate for president did. However difficult it was to get the position, however unlikely the, the circumstances under which they became president, as soon as they took that oath of office, all of a sudden they felt the weight of the office upon them and they felt the need to act presidential. Now, again, idiosyncratically, Donald Trump did not do that. And we'll see if that was a one-time thing or if it's going to recur. Speaking of that, uh, there's an undertone in, in your newest book about the founder's fear 
of demagogues and of, of greedy, uh, ambitious people becoming president. What exactly were they afraid of? And how did they get past that fear to, to ratify the Constitution? In their reading of history, republics of the past had ultimately all fallen prey to demagogues or dictators, individuals who thought that they were above the law and who would take advantage of the levers of power to extend their time in office. And this could be somebody like Julius Caesar, for example, who used the army to install himself in power. But there were other examples in history. And they took history seriously. They didn't think they had turned over a new leaf in history and that they were new people and that the, the old influences didn't apply to them. And so they had overturned, at least for them, a monarchy. And a monarchy has certain expectations. So people, whether you think the monarch, George III in this case, was stupid, he's still the king. And so there's certain expectations. And then there, there was the weight of the English common law, all of the precedents, all the practices. So they overthrew that culture. Now, they kept some of the expectations. In fact, they adopted the system of common law into the American legal system eventually. But they didn't know if people could actually govern themselves. And if you think about it for a minute, I mean, why should we think people could? Because every other society in the past has been used to, okay, somebody gives the orders. And for big things, even in American history, when the country goes to war, Okay, you got a commander-in-chief, you got the generals. When, you, when people are organized in groups, usually there's a top-down kind of system of command. So you know who's responsible, you know who makes the decisions. But in a system of self-government, the people make the decisions. And then, of course, the people elect other folks, and the other folks kind of make these decisions in their name. But, but what if people are not well-educated? What if people are not very wise? What if people are easily swayed by charming individuals, by demagogues? Somebody who promises, elect me, and I will bring the new paradise and all will be well. And if somebody is persuasive in that way, then that person could gain power. And they did recognize that there's a temptation to power. And when you have people who have power, don't want to give it up. People who have power want more of it. They really wondered, for example, if we get somebody in power, Will that person try to break the rules to stay in power? This is why one of the critical, really the critical moment in my story and the critical moment in American history was when there was the first transfer of power from one party to the other party following the election of 1800. That was the fourth presidential election, but George Washington won the first two by acclamation. And furthermore, parties didn't exist at that point. But parties emerged in time for the 1796 election. And in that election, John Adams, who headed the Federalist Party, and Thomas Jefferson, who led the Republican Party, they squared off. It was a close one. And Jefferson lost in this close race. And he said, okay, uh, Adams gets the presidency. Now, George Washington had said that he was above parties. And he didn't say, I'm a Federalist, I'm a Republican. No, no, not at all. But still, his policies were largely Federalist. And everybody understood that when John Adams became president, John Adams as an avowed Federalist, when he became president, he would extend the kinds of policies that Washington had. So that was not seen as a transfer of power at all. But when Jefferson defeated Adams in 1800, then the party in power gets tossed out and the other party takes over. And this is the question. This was the question for them. It's the question really for any new political system. It's not what's 
What's the response after the first election? It's what's the response after the second election? Is there a second election? And in particular, what's the response when the party in power gets voted out of office? Do they meekly say, yeah, we lost and we're gone? This, I would add, is one of the reasons that so many people were alarmed that Donald Trump said, I didn't lose the election of 2020. Now, he said, I didn't lose, but he did leave. So that's the critical thing. And so when Jefferson took power after the 1800 election, and it was a complicated election, took a long time to adjudicate and work out, but the Federalists, they did, they left. And that was crucial because, and, and in doing so, they acknowledged that they put the future of the Republic, the future of this experiment above their own narrow party and individual future. So have you ever thought about what would happen if your airline window popped out? Oh, that's terrifying. Or if you can build a jetpack using only machine guns? <laughs> Turns out you can, but you really shouldn't. No. Well, That's Interesting is a comedy science podcast for weird people who like learning about weird stuff. And it tells the story behind the facts because, as it turns out, those stories are funny. Every Thursday, host Jill Cha-Cha tells the tale behind an odd new discovery. Like how researchers found two mysterious structures surrounding Earth's core. Or how it's actually possible to stop hiccups using a rectal massage. Oh, we should try that. You know, um, I listened <laughs> to the episode and, and it's, it's focused on folks who have hiccups for like multiple days. But oh. I'm thinking, like, if it works, you know, one <laughs> You don't hiccup, have to wait. <laughs> right? Um, but there's a story behind that. No pun intended. If that's not reason enough to subscribe to, well, that's interesting. I don't know what is. The facts are bizarre, the stories are epic, and the laughter is plentiful. So join the flock and listen to Well, That's Interesting, wherever you do podcasts. I'm tuning in. Want to learn how you can make smarter decisions with your money? Well, I've got the podcast for you. I'm Sean Piles, and I host NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. On our show, we help listeners like you make the most of your finances. I sit down with NerdWallet's team of nerds, personal finance experts in credit cards, banking, investing, and more. We answer your real-world money questions and break down the latest personal finance news. The nerds will give you the clarity you need by cutting through the clutter and misinformation in today's world of personal finance. We don't promote get-rich-quick schemes or hype unrealistic side hustles. Instead, we offer practical knowledge that you can apply in your everyday life. You'll learn about strategies to help you build your wealth, invest wisely, shop for financial products, and plan for major life events. And you'll walk away with the confidence you need to ensure that your money is always working as hard as you are. So turn to the nerds to answer your real-world money questions and get insights that can help you make the smartest financial decisions for your life. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast wherever you get your podcasts. Now, looking at how you, you mentioned compromise was, was necessary for the founders and, and this generation, but they, they stuck to their principles. Um, when I think about James Madison, he may have stuck to his principles, but there was definitely an evolution in his priorities. <laughs> um, if you were to dramatize this time period through the eyes of, say, George Washington or Alexander Hamilton... Is there a moment when James Madison went from becoming a friend and an ally to becoming the villain? <laughs> well, James Madison is simply not a forceful enough, in an obvious dramatic way, individual, to make a good villain. Mm. But he is really a key test case for the evolution of thinking during this time. Because it was Madison, really more than anyone else, 
with Hamilton at his right hand, who said, we got to change the Articles of Confederation. They're too weak. The country is falling apart. We have to create a stronger central government. So Madison and Hamilton, they devised this plan to do really nothing less than to topple the government of the United States. The government of the United States was the government under the Articles of Confederation. And they said, we got to get rid of the Articles of Confederation. Now, they had to do this on the sly because they knew if these two young guys... Hamilton was still in his 20s when they started thinking about this, and Madison in his early 30s. They think, okay, if these two young guys are going to try to overthrow the, the government, well, wait, where do they get off thinking they can do this? And secondly, well, that's awfully bold for anyone of any age. So what they did is they said, let's get a bunch of people together to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. That sounds pretty innocuous, especially given the fact that under the Articles of Confederation, they could be amended only with a unanimous vote of all 13 states. So anybody who is suspicious of Madison and Hamill say, well, what harm can come of this? Because if we don't like it, then our state will simply veto it and we'll stay where we are. So they called this convention they called one, was supposed to meet in Annapolis, did meet in Annapolis, except almost nobody came. So they, they quickly spun it as saying, now this was just a preliminary convention. The real convention is going to be held in Philadelphia. So Philadelphia turned out better for them because things were turning out worse for the country. Between the Annapolis Convention in the fall of 1786 and the Philadelphia Convention in the spring of 1787, there was this rebellion in Western Massachusetts. And it was a kind of uprising led by Daniel Shays and a bunch of Revolutionary War veterans. And they, they thought they were being overtaxed and they didn't want to pay their taxes. And this is, was exactly the kind of turmoil that certain conservatives, including George Washington, were worried about. It was one thing for the country to hold together under the duress of war because with that external enemy, Britain, it kind of keeps everybody in line. But take away that enemy, and then these people are going to kind of go out on their own. And Washington was concerned. Washington was concerned that this country could hold together because under the Articles of Confederation, there really was, we wouldn't have called it a national government, really. It was, it was more like the European Union. It was almost like NATO. It was this alliance where every state was a, a sovereign nation, and nobody could tell the states what to do. And as a result of this, the country seemed to be flying apart just a few years after the war. So Washington is a crucial figure in this because of the Shays' Rebellion. He answers Madison's invitation because Madison says, we really need your presence and your guidance. And Washington probably wouldn't have said yes, except for this uprising that scared the daylights out of him too. So off he goes. So there's a greater willingness to entertain changes to the Articles of Confederation. But still, when all the delegates are sent by their states to Philadelphia, their instructions are to propose amendments to the Articles of Confederation. And they would propose them to the Confederation Congress. And if the Congress approved by a supermajority, then they would go to the states and there'd be this way to do it. As soon as all the delegates get to Philadelphia, Madison locks the doors of the State House, Independence Hall as we know it, and says, okay, we're not going to simply amend the Articles of Confederation. We're going to write a new constitution. And, and, and they lock the doors and say, don't tell anybody what we're doing. 
They swore everybody to secrecy because they understood if word gets out of what we're doing, then there will be an uproar in the states that will scuttle this thing before we can even do it. So they, over four months, they write this new constitution. Now, in their defense, in their sort of moral defense, they would say, well, we're not, we're not really overturning the existing constitution. What we're providing is an alternative. Instead of just amending the constitution, what we're basically proposing to the American people, okay, here's plan B. This is our constitution. Here's plan A. If you like this one better than this one, you keep it. But if you like the new one, then we'll start with the new one. Oh, but here's the thing. For the old one, changes could be made only with 13 out of 13 votes. For their new one, they said 9 out of 13 will do it, which posed a real possibility. What would happen if 9 states voted for it and 4 states didn't? Would we have these two competing constitutions? Would there be four states left under the Articles of Confederation and nine in, under the new constitution? Well, quite possibly. And this is why the debate over ratification was such a big deal. In fact, the constitution was ratified by nine states before the two biggest states Virginia and New York had made a decision. And everybody understood if Virginia and New York, if either one stayed out, then the new project would just collapse. But eventually, with Madison urging Virginia on and Hamilton urging New York on, those two came in, at which point the laggards said, well, we got to come too because we can't be left out on our own forever. So the two of them, Madison, Hamilton, they did it. They got it done. And then at a certain point, Madison was like, okay, the strong federal government that I fought so hard for. Whoa, whoa, whoa. It's going too far, too far. Ah, that's exactly it. Yeah. So what was it? Well, this is intriguing. So part of it, part of it is that Madison had got this ball rolling and it was this project that he had set for himself and he wanted to see it through to completion. But in the final stage in the ratification debate and in the ratification debate, he was a strong voice in favor of ratification. He was one of the three authors of the Federalist Papers. And by the way, the Federalist Papers gave their name to the Federalist side and the Federalist Party, the first of the parties to form up. And Madison was saying, we got to do this. We have to amend this. This is good for the country. It's good for America's future. Skeptics said, wait a minute, wait a minute. One of the things we don't like about this new constitution is that unlike the British constitution that we overthrew, now Britain didn't have a written constitution, but they did have this thing that people had in their minds. And unlike the state constitutions, this new thing has no bill of rights. What you're saying is what this new Congress can do, can do, can do. We want to hear what the new Congress cannot do. And Madison at first said, no, 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 that's a bill of rights isn't necessary because it's in the nature of this particular constitution, this particular government, that if the Constitution doesn't say that Congress does have the power, then by default it doesn't. And the skeptics said, well, put that in writing, will you? I don't just want to hear it from you. Put it in writing. Put it in the Constitution, for heaven's sakes. And put in things like freedom of the press and freedom of religion and other stuff. And Madison, initially, he sort of had that pride of authorship where, come on, these words didn't just appear on the page. You know, they're perfect as it is. Don't tell me to start editing it now. But the more he heard about this, the more he became convinced, first of all, as a pragmatic matter, it was necessary because he certainly didn't have any designs on the central government getting carried away, but obviously there were people who did. And so, okay, just simply put on paper the argument that he was saying. There's that. But also, in the course of this debate, as he watched Hamilton formulate his ideas. Hamilton was one of the other authors of the Federalist Papers. He realized that Hamilton had a grander vision 
for what the central government should do. And so Hamilton's going to take this new train as far as it's going to go. But Madison gets about halfway down the tracks. I'm using a metaphor here. Trains didn't exist yet. But um, he gets down and he says, well, I'm not sure I want a government that strong. Hamilton knew that he wanted a government stronger than the Articles of Confederation, but not as strong as Hamilton wanted. And the last thing is that Madison concluded that if there must be a Bill of Rights, well, you know, if there have to be rules, I'll write the rules. So I'll write the strictures. And as he started writing the Bill of Rights, what became the Bill of Rights, he concluded, you know, this is not such a bad idea after all. You know, something does have to set a boundary on what this new government can do. Because when you basically adopt an existing government, then you have all the expectations of you know, people knew what parliament could do and what parliament couldn't do, looking back at the British example. Not because it was written in writing, but because there were these precedents that had been established, and this is what the common law is all about. And they could point to a law of 50 years ago or 100 years ago. They could point all the way back to Magna Carta. Well, all that stuff disappears when you create this new government. So Madison becomes convinced that this Bill of Rights is not such a bad idea. And furthermore, then after the new government gets going, after Hamilton becomes Secretary of the Treasury in Washington's administration, and really the driving intellectual and political force in Washington's administration, then Madison sees that Hamilton's view of this new government is far more grandiose than Madison had in mind. And so he sort of quietly shifts his position from being in Hamilton's camp to moving toward Jefferson's camp. And, and some, some of it some of it is the two Virginians, Madison and Jefferson getting together, and Hamilton being a New Yorker. But most of it is that Madison realized, oh, I don't know, Hamilton's going to take this thing too far. So Madison winds up on Jefferson's side. That's very interesting. That I mean, I feel like Hamilton's got a story like that with a lot of folks. Oh. Like I think we talk about villains. And Hamilton, I mean, just by his nature, really is a, a good villain in a drama. And if you could talk a little bit about how that fit in with John Adams. Yeah. So I pose a question to my students. I teach at the University of Texas, and I pose a question to my students. And, and some of them will sort of think it's a trick question or think they know what the answer is. So, so why is it that Alexander Hamilton never became president of the United States? And a couple of hands will go up because he got killed in a duel. Well, no, he, you know, he could have been president before that. Um, and someone will say, oh, oh, because he wasn't born in the United States and you have to be a natural born citizen. And I say, well, yeah, it's true that he was born in the West Indies. But the rest of that clause in Article 2 of the Constitution says a natural born citizen in the United States or a citizen at the time of the adoption of the Constitution. So, no, that wasn't the problem. The reason he didn't become president is everybody hated Alexander Hamilton <laughs> because they knew, his allies knew they couldn't do without him. He was really smart. He was as prolific as could be. He was always churning out papers. And these papers were worth reading. His letters were always worth reading. And, and I learned a lot just reading them. But he, he wore his ambitions on his sleeve. He had sharp elbows. He was always, he always wanted to be the smartest guy in the room. He always wanted to be at the top of things. He really presented himself as a know-it-all. And that 
grated on people, like John Adams, for example. So John Adams was as conservative in his views as Hamilton. He certainly was as patriotic as Hamilton. He was a generation older than Hamilton. And his thinking was, who is this upstart, this young guy who comes out of nowhere and basically insinuates himself into George Washington's military family and and causes Washington to think of him as a second son? And, you know, where was he at the time of the debates over independence? Where was he in the last phases of our legal conflicts with Britain? You know, he just shows up and he thinks he can order everybody around. Now, Adams, Adams is a, a wonderful character on his own because, well, as Benjamin Franklin said about him, he is as honest as the day is long, but half the time he is utterly out of his mind. Mm-hmm. And the abiding concern of John Adams was that history would not give him credit for what he had done during these eventful years. And he later wrote a letter to his friend, Benjamin Rush, a Philadelphia physician. And he says that when the history of our times is written, it will be a pack of lies from beginning to end. And the story will say that Dr. Franklin, Benjamin Franklin, struck the earth with his lightning rod and out jumped General Washington. And between the two of them, Franklin and Washington, they conducted all the affairs of war and peace that gave us this country. And he didn't quite say it, but he was thinking it. And I, John Adams, who worked tirelessly but unglamorously, am going to be forgotten. And so when Adams is confronted by Hamilton. Hamilton's the flashy one. Hamilton is the one who gets the news stories. Hamilton is the one who ultimately gets a musical made after him. But but Adams is just kind of chugging along, and he cannot stand Alexander Hamilton. And Hamilton doesn't think much of Adams. He thinks that Adams is slow. Adams is too much the compromiser. Adams is just too old school. And, you know, we really have to get past this. So it turns out that, I mean, Hamilton and Adams were the leaders of the Federalist Party. But Hamilton just couldn't get along with anybody for long. And so he comes out and he declares his opposition to John Adams when Adams is running for re-election. He says that Adams is not qualified to be president and people shouldn't vote for him. And Adams think, my God, what's come over this guy? Yeah, reading that that letter that became a pamphlet of Hamilton basically saying how unfit John Adams was and all the different reasons because of his temperament, um, just all of these things that reading it today, it's almost eerie that those complaints could be something you could see someone saying about Trump, the things that, that Hamilton said about Adams. And that, I mean, it just makes me wonder, have have we been crying wolf? for 200 years? Or was there something that Hamilton really saw? Oh, I think Hamilton was making it up, honestly. I mean, John Adams was a solid guy. He made some decisions that stand up well in history. He made some decisions that don't stand up too well in history. But he wasn't and wouldn't have been a catastrophic president. When I read this, when Hamilton, as you say, writes this letter that becomes a pamphlet that explains all the reason that John Adams is unfit to be president. I think Hamilton was sort of 
repositioning himself for the future because he could tell after a series of unpopular laws, the Alien and Sedition Act, that the Federalists were probably going to lose. And he wanted to make sure that he wasn't associated with Adams when Adams went down to defeat. So he helps, he contributes to Adams's defeat. Furthermore, Hamilton was convinced that Jefferson's policies were lousy policies and that the country would come to its senses fairly shortly and they would turn back to the Federalists. And if he were the one who had said, okay, Adams, he wasn't for us, and Hamilton would say he was the keeper of the Federalist flame. Now, there was one last thing, that Hamilton was dealing with a private scandal where he had had an extramarital affair and paid blackmail to keep it quiet. And then it had been discovered. And so he had to deal with this. So he's got this, he's got this dark cloud hanging over him. And it was just like Hamilton to start throwing some shade on John Adams, whom he considered really his principal rival. Because Adams, actually Adams and Hamilton both, thought they were more qualified than Jefferson. Jefferson's a fascinating character in his own right, because Jefferson is the one who professes to be the philosopher. And he's writing, well, Hamilton is talking economics and finance, and Adams is talking sort of history, and Madison is talking political theory. So Jefferson is talking philosophy, and he's saying almost ridiculous things like we should have a revolution every generation or so. The tree of liberty needs to be watered with the blood of patriots. He had this idea that actually would resurface in the 20th century that laws should have limited terms. And we call them sunset. Laws be sunset. And if you want to keep the law, you have to pass it. And Jefferson raised this to the level of political philosophy. He says, if you believe in self-government, We're governing ourselves. We're governing ourselves. We're not being governed by the previous generation, the generation before that. So every generation should make its own laws. So Jefferson adopts this kind of airy view of all of this. Furthermore, Jefferson makes a point of never answering any criticism. So people can say the nastiest things about Jefferson. Jefferson just doesn't say anything in response because he knows Once you engage in this debate, it'll never end. All you do is give more publicity to the criticism that has been leveled at you. And he professes also to be above politics the way Washington was. But meanwhile, behind the scenes, he is creating this political party. And it turns out that he is a really good political organizer and political boss. So one of the things that Adams and Hamilton really had against Jefferson was that he was beating them at their own game without admitting that he was even playing the game. And they said that, you know, they tear their hair at this. I think about Adams and it seems like nobody had enough integrity for him, except very few of his friends. Oh, right. Um, And the joy he must have taken when, oh, Hamilton's got a scandal. Oh, Jefferson's got a scandal. Um, Adams had a pride and you're not going to find any illegitimate children of mine anywhere. And one of the advantages that historians like me have in dealing with Adams is that Adams in his correspondence really bared his soul, especially when he's writing to Abigail, his wife, as one would expect. You know, you write to your spouse. And those letters survive. Now, it's kind of an irony of history that when you try to write about John Adams and Abigail Adams, it's one of the great love stories in American history. 
that the time when you can actually tell their story is the time that's hardest on the two of them, when they're apart. Because when they're apart, they write letters to each other. When they are happiest, it's when they're together. We don't know what they're saying to each other because they're saying it face to face and no record of that survives. So because Adams and Abigail spent so much time apart, we have this record of them. And Adams will write to Abigail about Jefferson, about Madison, about Hamilton. And he really does blow hot and cold. And so to watch him, to read him agonizing about whether when George Washington retires from the presidency, he's the vice president, and nobody knew how the succession was supposed to work. Does the vice president have an edge going in or what? And Adams professes to be kind of agonizing. My heart tells me I just want to retire. I want to go back to Massachusetts and live a quiet life on the farm. But will I be denying the national interest? If my country calls me, should I do this? And so he realizes that there is this ambition in him. And I trace the Adams story back far enough in the book to show that as a young man, he's consumed with the idea that he wants to be somebody. He wants the world to know the name of John Adams. And by this time, he has achieved a lot. He's a towering figure of the independence movement. He was an American ambassador abroad. He's been been vice president of the United States. Is he going to take that next step? And and what is it going to take out of him to do it? And especially he's realizing that, oh man, politics is rougher in this republic than I ever thought. All of these guys, they at least professed to believe that in the republic that they had created, politics wouldn't be as ambition-driven, wouldn't be as sharp-elbowed. It wouldn't be motivated by partisan feelings and partisan alliances. They spoke of civic virtue. And I don't know if they fully believe this. Some of it was political propaganda. So, for example, when Jefferson writes the Declaration of Independence, he points points the finger of blame for all the bad laws at George III. He did this, he did this, he did this. Now, Jefferson knew perfectly well that George III wasn't making the laws. It was Parliament that was making the laws. But Jefferson understood that villains are easier to identify if they're just one. If it's a committee of the hundreds in Parliament, well, you can't really zero in on that. Jefferson is rationalizing. He's justifying this break, this act of treason in the eyes of the British of you know, trying to create this new country. And so he has, to, he has to hold out for Americans this sort of dream of a republic of virtue, of we're going to be driven, we're going to be governed by good people following good impulses rather than these bad impulses by these bad old people. But then America becomes free and lo and behold, Americans have ambitions. Americans have differences of opinion. A last thing on this subject. I mentioned earlier that during the revolution, there was division in the revolution. At the end of the revolution, all the loyalists, the ones who were on the other side, they leave, they sail off with the British. So it's tempting to think that, yeah, our country was divided during the revolution, but the, the good guys won and the bad guys have left. So now all of us who are in agreement, now we're going to govern. Except that you take away that element and then there are differences among these other guys. So I don't know the extent to which they were actually surprised that ambition and differences of opinion would emerge the way they did. Or if you know they had been hoping that they wouldn't and then they did and they had to move from there. Yeah, and how much of it is just human nature? It's hard to ah, say, but... yeah. 
So last question, you're, you're very prolific. You've, you've got a lot of works out there and you've said that it's because you genuinely love writing. What do you love most about it? Boy, uh, I'll tell you. First, I'll, tell you, I'll answer your question by process of elimination. I'll tell you what I don't like about All it. Right. And it's the thing that I have been doing just this morning before I started talking to you. I am correcting the proofread and the typeset manuscript of a book previous. So the only thing I don't like in the book production process is this business of proofreading the last version before it goes to the printer because I've read it six times before and it's just kind of boring and I can't make any changes anyway, but I got to do it. But for the rest, I like it. I like choosing a new project because it means I'll get to learn new stuff. Um, It's for this reason that I don't use research assistants because I like the joy of discovery. I don't really know always what I'm looking for until I see it, and I can't subcontract that out. I like the trying to write a first draft. You know, so how do I how do I get what's in my head and put it down on the page? I think of writing as a little bit like carpentry, where you got these pieces of wood and you try to, you know, you cut them and you trim them and you saw them and you sand them and you do all this stuff and you try to put them together. And that's what I'm thinking about when I'm writing. I, I write a paragraph at a time. Okay, this paragraph. How can I make this paragraph the best it can be? And I often think of a paragraph sort of like a little jewel box or something. Okay, I got to get this right and then I can move on to the next one. So I simply like doing it. And in my case, I, I think I really benefit from the fact that I teach history as well as write history. Because by the time I wrote this book, on the emergence of party politics in the 1780s and 90s. I had been lecturing to my students about it and discussing it with my students for 30 years. So I knew the general outlines of the story and I knew basically the positions of the players. Now, when I decided to make a book out of it, then I read more closely and more thoroughly into the papers of James Madison and Hamilton and Adams and Jefferson and looking for those particular things that they had said, those particular moments, the the epiphany that Madison has when he's the one who writes in Federalist 10, how this new constitution is going to reign in factions. And then once he gets into actual factional politics, factions are what they called parties, then he realizes, oh, factions are probably inevitable. And being inevitable, then let's make the most of them. I mean, I was going to ask if there was anything that surprised you. And reading the book, that that really struck me as as a find, yeah. because you can talk about how somebody's views evolved, but that, that stark contrast between like, uh, this is the worst, we're going to avoid it, to, you know, this is part of us. Yeah. It's both comforting and depressing to think about the history of partisan politics and how it's always been with us, I guess. So the way I like to cast this is that, you know, we, we observe partisan politics today, and a lot about it is kind of ugly and discouraging. And I go back to the 1790s, and I see sort of the same thing. And I can draw two lessons from this. One is pessimistic, and the other one's optimistic. The pessimism is that, my gosh, if the party politics we've had today has been around for 200 years, it's never going to go away. It's going to be with us forever. The optimistic side is, well, it hasn't killed us yet, so it probably won't. On that note, thank you so much for your time and for being here. It was a pleasure speaking with you. It was good talking to you. Okay, wow. Another really great guest and another really great interview. Definitely invited to our dinner party. Yes, the dinner party of all of our guests. (laughs) Definitely invited. That was exciting, but also disturbing. A little bit, yeah. And I, I, I guess I've always taken that peaceful transfer of power for granted. 
Right. You know, it's never really something I thought about after an election. It just was assumed. And I never really paid attention to the fact that it was even there, which now I look back on as such a privilege. And and to think the founders had the foresight to know that that key piece needed to be there in order to prevent a dictatorship. Yeah, definitely. And I mean, you look at the impetus for him to write the book and, and what it's about. And when I asked him in the beginning, if it's just as much a book about compromise, it, it really is, you know, the story of the United States is the story of different groups of people getting together to agree on certain things. And that peaceful transfer of power was um, one of them. Yeah, I was. it was just really a pleasure to hear him speak about everything. Oh, absolutely. And I mean, I don't know if you're thinking of doing a podcast, but the secret to having guests on is to pick people that are professional lecturers and are uh-huh. very smart because you don't have to do much work. Right. They, <laughs> they can just talk carry it. And there you've got wonderful content. You've spent time with a great person. That's my that's my secret. Yeah. I mean, I think it's great that you've honed that because you have had some great guests and he's definitely on that list. Yes. And if you enjoyed this interview, check out some of our great interviews with folks like Lindsay Chervinsky, Michael Meyer, Kara Finnegan, and more. If you're new to the show, thank you for joining us. Uh, We think you're going to like it here. Dig into (laughs) our previous episodes where traditionally I dive into stories and I bring them to Jess, who's not privy to what we're going to be talking about. So it's lots of fun. Lots of fun, usually. Yeah. So check out Founding Partisans. Enter for a chance to win a copy through the link in our show notes. If you like what you heard, spread the word. Check out plodpod.com and reach out on Facebook. Yeah, we are there. Yes, we are there. I'm there. You're there. I'm there. Yep. We're there because we're old. (laughs) Yeah, this is is the old people platform now. Yeah, yeah. And consider joining our Patreon community for fun bonus content and perks, including the full unedited video version of this interview with H.W. Brands. That is really cool. Where you're going to get to see the patience on his face where he (laughs) indulges my questions. (laughs) Join us next time where we are going to embark on a journey to explore some of the history, struggles, and mystery behind George Washington's home, Mount Vernon. Uh Uh-huh. I can't wait for that since we've been there. Yes. I almost feel like I wish I had listened to this and then gone, but I, I'm sure of it. We'll go again. It's yeah. open every day. Every day, <laughs> including even Christmas. Christmas. Yes. Yes. All right. So I'm looking forward to that. Awesome. This has been an Airwave Media Podcast. Thank you for plotting along with us. Thanks for plotting. Bye. Why can't we all just get along? Haha. <laughs>